Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Hi, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to the 284th episode of Awards Chatter, the Hollywood Reporter's Awards podcast, which is presented today by Bravo's Dirty John, Below Deck, Watch What Happens Live with Andy Cohen, Top Chef, and Project Runway, for your Emmy consideration. I'm the host, Scott Feinberg, and my guest today is one of the greatest fashion designers and costume designers in history. The New York Times has said he is, quote, responsible for some of the most instantly recognizable costumes of all time, close quote. Carol Burnett has said, quote, I didn't know what I'd do with a character until he did the outfit, close quote. Deanna Vreeland said his, quote, superb clothes are not equaled in even French workrooms, close quote. And he himself has said, quote, a woman who wears my clothes is not afraid to be noticed, close quote. This is a man who, over the course of some 60 years in the business, has worked with Judy Garland, Mitzi Gaynor, Carol Burnett, Cher, Diana Ross, Barbara Streisand, Tina Turner, Anne Margaret, Liza Minnelli, Bette Midler, Elton John, and so many others. But he is perhaps best known for his work on 11 seasons of The Carol Burnett Show and multiple variety shows featuring Sonny and Cher. A 2002 inductee into the Television Hall of Fame, a 32-time Emmy nominee who has won nine Emmys, including the first one ever presented for costume design, a three-time Oscar nominee, and this year, for the first time, a Tony nominee who is the frontrunner to win for his work on The Cher Show, in which he is also portrayed as a character, the Sultan of Sequins and the Raja of Rhinestones, the legendary Bob Mackie. Over the course of our conversation at the offices of Rubenstein Communications in Manhattan, the 80-year-old and I discussed what inspired him to design clothes in the first place, how he came to work with many of the most talented women and gay icons of his lifetime, what inspired some of his greatest creations, from the Gone with the Wind parody dress with a curtain rod for The Carol Burnett Show to Cher's various Oscar outfits, how it feels to finally be accepted by the fashion world establishment after decades of being dismissed as merely a costume designer, plus much more. But first, I was joined at the Weston Hotel in Times Square by David Rooney, our chief theater critic and a Tony's voter himself, to help me preview Sunday night's 73rd Tony Awards, which will be hosted by James Corden. David, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Scott. Wonderful to be here. Well, so I think the fun way to approach this is to just go category by category and talk about, in your case, what you think should win and just your assessment of the nominees, and we'll come to what's likely to 
when at the end of each conversation. But there were more than 30 shows this season. 25 of them are represented with at least one nomination. And so there's a lot to talk about on top of the fact that it's an exciting time in town here, and not least because the shrimp cocktail is back at Joe Allen. Yay! It's, no, it's a big special Tony honorary, yes. <laughs> honorary award. award. Right. We, we've wanted it for years, and it's back. It's back. Well, let's start, though, with Best Play. Nominees are Choir Boy from Terrell Alvin McCraney, the playwright who also was behind the source material for Moonlight, The Ferryman, which is now with a replacement cast but came over from the UK, Gary, a sequel to Titus Andronicus, Inc., and What the Constitution Means to Me. And I think the big place to start here, David, is that To Kill a Mockingbird is not among the five nominees. What happened there? You know, it's interesting. It's an anonymous voting process, the Tony nominating committee, and I guess I can see a scenario in which everyone's thinking, well, someone else will vote for that. I'm going to vote for this. I think that Broadway is lagging behind in terms of representation, diversity, inclusiveness, all of that. Off-Broadway is going ahead leaps and bounds with a lot of minority playwrights being produced. A lot of good work along with a lot of mediocre work. But the fact is, representation has really seen a shake-up off-Broadway. And Broadway may be feeling the push to catch up. So I think it's significant that we have two queer playwrights, Terrell McCraney, Choir Boy, Taylor Mack for Gary, a woman, what the Constitution means to me, only one, which is still a little poor, but okay, and then Mm -hmm. two Brits, James Graham with Ink and Jess Butterworth with The Ferryman. So I think also there is a push in terms of considering the plays to really favor new work, Mm -hmm. original work, and maybe a lot of people think that there's a certain stigma attached to doing an adaptation. I think they're wrong in this case. Mm -hmm. I think that it would have been a very valid inclusion to have To Kill a Mockingbird in there as a sixth nominee. And there there were also some legal issues surrounding other people in the area being able to do versions of To Kill a Mockingbird and stuff like that that may have backfired a little bit, right? Maybe, yeah. There is a sense of Scott Rudin as this big producer who kind of runs a lot of Broadway, and he has his admirers and his detractors. I think whatever you say about Scott, you have to admit, he has incredible taste. Mm -hmm. He is very good at choosing projects. Some of them work commercially, some of them don't. To Kill a Mockingbird is a project that really has resonated. It struck a chord with people. I think it's a fantastic adaptation. I think Aaron Sorkin was kind of duped Mm -hmm. out of a nomination in this case. And it is the hot ticket right now, right? It's incredibly difficult to get a seat to. It's doing a million five, a million six a week, which is phenomenal business for a play. That's kind of musical business. It's not really dramatic play business. So these being the five that did make the cut, it seems like the win is likeliest between The Ferryman and What the Constitution Means to Me. Do you argue that another one of these should win? I think, you know, I could see a scenario in which Choir Boy might win, but not so much the others. I was underwhelmed by Ink, I have to admit. I found that play a little clever for its own good. I don't think it went very deep. I think there are a lot of interesting stories to tell about Rupert Murdoch, Mm -hmm. and I'm not sure that was one of them. Mm -hmm. I also am a little bit over the Rupert Gould show. The the director of that play is all about the bells and whistles and not so much about the text or performances. So while Bertie Carville is great as Murdoch, Mm -hmm. and Johnny Lee Miller is also very good as his editor, Larry Lamb, I think that the play felt kind of empty and long and windy to me. 
But Gary, I think, is a really ballsy choice to be in there. I don't know how many votes it's going to get, but I kind of like the fact that it's on Broadway and it's represented. All right. Uh, so, well, but, but what the Constitution uh, means to me is I think it's a really strong play. It's really keyed into this moment in a way that no other play is this season in terms of Time's Up, Me Too, all of that, the way women are treated in the U.S. Constitution, the way women are regarded in terms of legislation in this country, what we're seeing happening in the South now with abortion laws, all of that. It's an incredibly relevant play for right now. So, so the I think should it's win for David Rooney is? The should win for me is the ferryman because I'm just a tireless lover of big, populous, bold theater. Yeah. I think there's a great thriller element to it. I think there's a great family drama. It's just a big, sprawling, rich tapestry of life. And I think that the way Sam Mendes has directed the piece, it just pulsates with all of this energy in a similar way to Jez Butterworth's play Jerusalem from a few years back. I do think he's a great playwright in terms of these big themes, big muscular pieces of theater that we don't get so often anymore because the basic economics of theater are so tight that everyone wants to do a three-character single-set play. Right. Well, I do think that that seems to be the way that the tide is breaking, that I think for the will win, I will say right now the ferryman as well, although I wonder if it makes any difference that there's the original cast that everybody first saw, including the Tony voters, is not there for the home stretch here. I, I assume they'll be here for the ceremony itself because a number of them are nominated, but I don't think we ever quite got to the bottom of why that is, if it was a visa issue or what, but that the original company, which started overseas and brought it here, is not here for the home stretch. Yeah, I think the fact that a lot of them had done it at the Royal Court, then they had done it in the West End transfer, so they'd been doing it for a long time. Yeah. Then they did six or eight months or whatever it was on Broadway. So. I think contracts were up, equity deals were probably ended at that point. Who knows? Yeah. Uh, you know, they may have had other projects in the works. Let's but the fact is, they didn't just replace them with third-tier no, shabby no, Broadway. No. It's, it's a top-tier replacement cast. Absolutely. So I think people who are seeing the play now are not having a lesser experience right. with it. Let's go to Best Musical, which to me is the toughest category, just to predict. You've got Ain't Too Proud sort of a Jersey Boys-esque thing with the Temptations, Beetlejuice, Hadestown, which is the show with the most nominations of any show, 14, The Prom, and then Tootsie, which is doing big business and also getting raves. So purely from a should-win point of view, what's your take on that category? Oh, absolutely Hadestown all the way. I think it's a really original piece with a beautiful score. I think it's incredibly well sung. The only thing that maybe will count against it in some ways, I think, is that it's a weird show in that the leads are far less compelling than the supporting characters. Mm -hmm. The romantic leads, are there, Reeve Carney and Eva Noblitzada, are just much less interesting as characters than Hades and Persephone, played by Patrick Page and Amber Gray, and by Hermes, played by the wonderful Andre de Shields. Yes. So... In that sense, it's an oddball, but it's beautifully staged. I think Rachel Chavkin was gypped out of the Tony for Best Director a couple of years back for Natasha Pierre and the Great My Comet favorite, of 1812. favorite, favorite show. Beautifully yeah. directed yeah. show, incredibly innovative and full of imagination and just wonderful, inextricable work with the design people as well, with the lighting, with the costumes, with the set design. And I think she's done the same thing here. It's a beautifully directed piece that has really benefited from multiple productions prior to Broadway in which it's evolved every step of the way. I personally love the Orpheus and Eurydice myth. I think it's one of the most beautiful. 
and I found it very moving. I found the music incredibly memorable, and I think Ingrid Michaelson, should she decide to continue with musical theater, I'm really interested to see what she does, because I do think there's a very original voice here. And, you know, a show with a book, score, and lyrics by a woman that doesn't happen so often. I think Town really deserves it. Well, and it would be consistent with the way things have gone the last few years, whether it's Fun Home or Dear Evan Hansen or Hamilton, where something has come up through Off-Broadway, really found support within the community, and then, you know, an original work as opposed to, it seems like there's been a reaction against something like, now look, Tootsie itself is in a way a totally new work because what we think of as Tootsie was certainly not a musical. They've done a beautiful job with that. And I think Santino Fontana, who will will come to that category, is like a slam dunk. Absolutely. So there's somewhere where that will be recognized for sure. The prom, I think maybe, you know, it's amazing what an aggressive push they've made for that. And also that... The prom does have a shot at being, you know, the little show that could. Yes. It's the underdog at the box office. Tootsie is doing very well. Town is selling out. Ain't Too Proud is doing phenomenal business, which is, again, I think... We can be critical about the proliferation of the jukebox musical, Mm -hmm. the proliferation of the movie-to-musical adaptation. But I think that Ain't Too Proud and Tootsie are superior examples of both. They're both very deserving nominees. And The Prom is a totally original, completely charming, captivating show. It's funny. Mm -hmm. It's fresh. It's queer positive. I think that, you know, these are all pretty legitimate contenders. Beetlejuice... Yeah, the, I think is the weak link here. But you're so you're a Tony voter. Do you look at this and say, I want to use my vote to help a show that needs help, as opposed to rubber stamping a show that's already going over great? Or do you just totally remove any of that and just what do I truly think is the best? Because if you're looking to help a show, perhaps you do vote for the prom. Or if you're looking to endorse the idea of original works coming up through, you know, you sort of through the system, then Hades Town. I'm just curious personally how you approach that. I guess I do think about what show is going to benefit the most from a Tony. And I think something like Tootsie is going to have commercial longevity regardless. It's a hugely entertaining show. And as long as Santino Fontana stays in it, it really delivers on all levels. I think the book is exceptional for Tootsie. It's very, very funny. Mm -hmm. What's great about it is that the jokes we know from the movie are not the jokes that really have you screaming with laughter Mm -hmm. during the show. Mm -hmm. It's the new stuff. It's very fresh. And I think that the potentially problematic aspect of a guy passing himself off as a woman to take a woman's job has been addressed head on, and I think quite smartly. But what they've done with the show that I think is really exceptional is flesh out all the supporting characters in wonderful ways. So they all have their distinct identity, which is very different from the identity of their predecessors in the movie. You know, it's a great show, but does it need the Tony? Maybe not. I tend to just really, to answer your question mm-hmm. in a long-winded way, mm-hmm. I tend to really go with what I, just my gut, what I think is the best show of them all. Well, so in this case, we agree the should win and the will win in a very tight race, but I think we're coming in with Hades Town on both counts. That could be a spoiler category. You know, no, could for, be sure, a, for sure. An underdog but if we like the prom, even Ain't Too the Proud. Head. You know, they, they all have their fans. Absolutely. I just think if we have the gun to the head and have to make a call right now, it's the easiest to justify, but it's, it could go in a number of ways. Best Revival of a Play, the third of the big four show awards. You've got three shows that are closed, The Boys in the Band, Torch Song and the Waverly Gallery, and then two others that are still running. We saw All My Sons together, and then there's also Burn This. A lot of Hollywood talent between these categories. All My Sons has Annette Benning, 
boys in the band had a, a whole host of folks burn this carrie russell and adam driver and then waverly gallery elaine may lucas hedges on and on joan allen who was not nominated individually same with hedges in terms of revival of a play where do you fall on that I think it's a tight race. I really enjoyed the All My Sons revival. I think it's very solid. It doesn't reinvent the wheel, but it's a really sharp production, beautifully acted. And Burn This, I think, Driver is phenomenal. It's one of those performances that you really remember. Everything about it is so physical, so dynamic. Uh, It's kind of a Brando-esque performance. And Torch Song, I had kind of lukewarm feelings about when it was off-Broadway, but I think by the time it moved to Broadway, Michael Ury, who was playing the Harvey Firestein character, had sort of stepped out from that shadow and made the role his own in ways that I thought were quite beautiful. And Mercedes Rule was great. I think it was a terrific revival. So this is a strong category, but I do think it's going to come down to a clash between Boys in the Band mm-hmm. and the Waverly Gallery, both of which are terrific productions. I love Kenny Lonergan's plays. Mm -hmm. I don't think the Waverly Gallery is his strongest. Mm -hmm. It's maybe his most personal, Mm -hmm. but I also find we've seen this kind of territory so much in indie movies, particularly there are always 18 versions of this play at every Sundance. And I thought it had its limitations. What it did have that I think was incredible was Elaine May's performance. And I think it's also quite beautifully directed by Lila Neugebauer. For me, Joan Allen's omission from the featured actress category is one of the big crimes of these Tony nominations. But if I had to go for a production for Best Revival, my pick would be Boys in the Band. I think that that But this is that you should win. Absolutely should win. I mean, first of all, politically, it's inconceivable that 10 years ago we could have had this play, which has been equally vilified and celebrated by LGBTQ audiences over the decades— Some people think it's great. Some people think it perpetuates the ugliest kind of stereotypes. But I think what Joe Mantello did in directing this beautifully cast production was to take a play that is potentially problematic and show us via compassion for the characters, for the situation they're in, show us the context, the social context of what created these men and their hang-ups and their neuroses, what made them bitter and aggressive with one another that you know there's as much hate as love as much self-loathing as celebration in it and i think all of that is what made that production very complex and entertaining and rewarding i think that well yeah it does seem between those two for the will win as well although it's unusual certainly not unheard of at all but unusual that you would have this between a bunch of shows that have closed but i think there's of the two that are still running i have a hard time seeing all my son's or burn this beating those. And I guess it's just a question of, you know, Rudin has mounted a very aggressive campaign for Waverly Gallery, but I think that everyone recognizes Elaine May is going to be honored in her category. So I'm inclined to... And deservedly so. And deservedly so. So I would be inclined to think they would go with Boys in the Band here as well. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned Scott Rudin aggressive campaign for the Waverly Gallery, I don't think the boys in the band has been any less aggressive. No. They're reminding us all very consistently that, you know, even though the play happened last summer and it's long gone, that it was very well loved in the community. It had a great response. It commercially was very successful. I think my choice for should win would be boys in the band, but I find it very hard to say which one will. Well, yeah. I think it's really going to be down to the wire for boys in the band and the Waverly Gallery, Yes, both of which would be deserving Absolutely. Winners. Let's go to revival of a musical where we have an unusual situation, just two nominees. It was a very thin year for musical revivals, and the two that we have are Kiss Me Kate, 
with Kelly O'Hara, who's also nominated. We'll come to her later. And then Oklahoma, but not your grandmother's Oklahoma. This one is in the round at Circle in the Square and done very unconventionally with pots and pans right in front of the audience. Anyway, very— Cornbread, chili. Yeah, chili. Yeah, exactly. uh, During intermission, which even Anna Wintour was lining up for, received some publicity. Anyway, between these two— it does seem to have really broken for Oklahoma, both in terms of what people think should and will win. So I don't know how much we need to get into that if you have anything you'd want to add about that. I found Kiss Me Kate, I have to say, slightly pedestrian. Mm-hmm. I thought that there were some great moments. Kelly O'Hara singing Cole Porter's song So In Love is really just one of the beautiful vocal performances of the year. She can do anything. I'm not sure that this kind of comedy is really her forte. And for me, it didn't help that the show was so recently revived with Brian Stokes Mitchell and the wonderful Marin Mazzi who died last yes. year and who's being honored at the Tonys. Yes. Um, that was a pretty standout production. This, to me, felt like it had some great moments. This, the Too Darn Hot Dance Ensemble number is pretty fantastic. Yes, Warren um, Carlyle. But, you know, for every electrifying moment, there were some kind of sluggish moments, and I'm not entirely convinced that Will Chase is a great romantic lead. I think he's fine. He gets the job done, but he's not particularly inspiring. That show, I kind of forgot it the minute it was over. Whereas Oklahoma, we I know we disagree on this. You were not such a fan. For me, getting Anna Wintour to eat carbs is, <laughs> is the least of its achievements. I think it's a pretty phenomenal yeah, reinvention yeah. Of, a, of an old chestnut that can be kind of corny and old school. But we forget that Oklahoma was a revolutionary show in its right. day. It followed Showboat in showing Americans that musical theater can be narratively complex and can have dramatic heft to it. It's not just fluff. And I think what Daniel Fish has done is take the show back to its roots as a play to really explore the dark heart of America and this sense of men coming in and taking ownership of the land, ownership of women, marginal figures being pushed aside and dealt with without any kind of justice. I found it really heartbreaking, and it just had me gripped the entire time. I also think what they've done with the orchestrations is just genius. I think taking it back to this bluegrassy kind of sound with instruments that are true to the period, these beautiful kind of like early Katie Lang country orchestrations on songs that we know so well, I think it's just superb. I absolutely adored that production. You make a lot of good points. I still am not clear what the thing was when you come back from intermission and you've got a interpretive dance from somebody but whatever i mean it was a uh, it's strong feelings on both directions i've seen with that what i'm going to suggest we do for the remaining categories because i want to make sure we touch on all of them is i'll say the nominees and maybe let's just uh sentence or two on the should wins and a sentence or two on the will wins and we'll just zoom right through them so let's start with best performance by a leading actor in a play patty constantine for the ferryman brian cranston for network jeff daniels for to kill a mockingbird adam driver for burn this And Jeremy Pope, a newcomer who's nominated twice this year, in this case, and in this category, for Choir Boy. We should just quickly note, Cranston is a past winner just a few years ago for All the Way. Daniels has never won before. Take it away. They're all really strong contenders. Any one of them could be a very dignified winner. I think Jeremy Pope, it's great that he is duly represented here, and for Ain't Too Proud, he's doing fantastic work. And just having done those shows back-to-back, it's really a phenomenal debut Broadway season for him. I think his time will come if he continues with stage work and doesn't get channeled away into film and TV projects. Patty Considine is so fantastic. Again, 
a total novice to the stage. This was his first stage role. I think that his performance in The Ferryman was really quite something. Cranston is great, but for me, he's the only thing that I love about Network. I thought that, you know, I love that movie, but I think that the Paddy Chayefsky screenplay is very much linked to its time. A lot of the things he was so prescient about foreseeing have come to pass, and now they kind of just you know, they yield a shrug and that's about it. Cranston is pretty electrifying, but whenever he's not on the center of the stage, I felt the place slump a little bit and all of the bells and whistles of all the multimedia stuff just became like a distraction. Adam Driver, we we talked about, he's an animal on stage. He's just fantastic. And I think that the breakaway from stage work into television and film has fed his craft in a really interesting way. I think what he's doing in this play is so far above and beyond the things he did early in his days, straight out of Juilliard as an actor. I think he's phenomenal. But, you know, I would go with Jeff Daniels here. I think he's a very deserving winner. It's very hard to take a character like Atticus Finch, who all of us know from the book, all of us know from the movie, from Gregory Peck's performance, and to give that character a moral shading that he doesn't have in the movie. His arc is, I think, much more complex, and that, I think, is part of the strength of Aaron Sorkin's quite beautiful adaptation, is taking us with Atticus as he makes up his mind and is influenced by the forces around him, and his mind is opened up to the forces of racism he is trying to combat in his very earnest way. Well, I think for the Wilwyn, it does seem to be between Cranston and Daniels, these two people who are certainly well-known on the West Coast as well and have come here and done months and months of great work. I think that there is a certain impulse of people to, you know, give somebody else a first win before they give a second to Cranston. But my sort of gut feeling is that people are just so blown away by what Cranston has done in this and that it's less of an ensemble piece than To Kill a Mockingbird, where my sense is that Cranston will get his second but you might be right it's an incredible virtuoso performance i mean there's just where he gets all that energy and all that kind of internal angst that comes up it's really an exhausting performance to watch in a good way but you know i don't think you can underestimate the importance of a really strong linchpin in holding together a big ensemble yeah. and daniels does that i think quite beautifully with a minimum of showiness oh, and a great great theater actor i mean i thought either one of them very yeah, worthy winners. absolutely Performance by a leading actress in a play, Annette Benning, All My Sons, Laura Donnelly, The Ferryman, Elaine May, Waverly Gallery, Janet McTeer, Bernhard Hamlet, Laurie Metcalf, Hillary, and Clinton, having won in each of the last two years, and then Heidi Schreck, who also wrote What the Constitution Means to Me. This seems to be one we can handle pretty quickly because for her first time on Broadway in about 50 years— More than 50 years. More than 50 years— Elaine May for the Waverly Gallery seems like a slam dunk. Yeah, I mean, she's been around as a writer occasionally, but not as a performer since back in the days with, when she was a, an improv duo with Mike Nichols. She is a beloved figure in the theater community, in the film community. She has always been something of a maverick. And I think what she does in this play, the lines separating performer from character just disappear completely. And she had me believing from the first scene that she is this woman who is formidable in her day, once this incredible social creature, part of the Greenwich Village gallery scene. And there's a sadness that comes with that, a melancholy aspect that clings to that performance as her mind starts deteriorating faster than her body. And I really think that she does something quite spectacular here. Yeah. But, you know, there are a lot of other good performances. I think Annette Benning is terrific. Again, absent from Broadway for more than 30 years. Wow. 
Laurie Metcalf, this play didn't stick with me. She's always wonderful to watch, but it yeah. wasn't great. Janet McTeer, the same, but I think yeah. that is a truly terrible play. And uh, <laughs> Laura Donnelly is pretty great, playing a character somewhat inspired by her family's experiences. And Heidi Schreck is sort of doing a version of herself, which yeah. requires some skill, but, you know, there's nothing here quite at the level of Elaine May. Best performance by a leading actor in a musical, Brooks Ashmanskis for The Prom, Derek Baskin for Ain't Too Proud, Alex Brightman for Beetlejuice, nominated just a couple of years ago for uh, another performance in the same Winter Garden Theater School of Rock, Damon Duano for Oklahoma, and Santino Fontana. Tootsie, it's another one I think we can pretty quickly say the will and should would be Santino Fontana. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I liked all of these performances. I would argue maybe that Brooks Ashmanskas should be in the featured category, not the lead, mm-hmm. but he is always hilarious. Always he hilarious. is the funniest man on a New York stage. I, I agree. I get a huge kick out of him. But, but Santino Fontana yeah. is just great. I mean, it's quite an achievement, I think, to take a role that is so identified iconically with Dustin Hoffman and to make it new. And that's part of I think the writers and the directors, everybody involved has contributed to this. But ultimately, it's Santino who's carrying every scene. And he makes you care about the character. I think he's wonderful. Yeah, I think the moment when he sings, I won't let you down, and you realize he can do this is one of the great moments of the season. So that and was, you start to buy him as a woman. Absolutely. And I think that's the essential part. If you don't buy him as a woman in that first scene, you're basically not yeah. on board with the show. But moment. he sells it. He yep. sells it very cleverly. And it's not a caricature. It's a real characterization. Best performance by a leading actress in a musical, Stephanie J. Block, The Share Show. She plays the most mature version of three shares in that show. The other two are not nominated, which seems a little unfair, but she is the star. Caitlin Kanunen for The Prom. Beth Level also for The Prom, a past winner. Eva Novozaita for Town, just a few years after being nominated for Miss Saigon. And Kelly O'Hara, seventh nomination. She won three or four years ago for The King and I. And so it seems like... This, in most people's calculations, the should and the will is between Stephanie J. Block and Beth Level. Where do you fall on that? Well, I find Beth Level, you know, a perfect match for Brooks Ashman's because just yes. hilarious, everything she does. She kind of plays variations on the same character, but she does it so well. She is the ultimate kind of egomaniacal yes. stage diva, and she's just fabulous at it. I laughed my butt off in the prom. I found it yes. a very, very funny show. But, you know, SJB all the way. I think it's <laughs> it's Stephanie J. Block. She really brings class and a wink-wink kind of irony without pushing it too hard to the share right. show. She knows exactly the show she's in. And she, I think what she does for me that's fundamental in this show is she gets Cher's irony. There's yeah. always a certain self-awareness and an irony to Cher right. that I think saves this show from being a big just a big, trashy, glitzy, Vegas kind of spectacle. Right. And it is that to some degree, but it's also incredible fun. It's a fun. lot of fun. And yeah. she, Stephanie J. Block just owns it. Every moment she's on stage, oh, very she has such authority. actress and somebody in the community who, and again, Beth Level has won before, and she's now having to compete for votes with a co-star. So I think that Stephanie J. Block ends up winning there. Stephanie J. Block is also a real trooper. Broadway yeah. loves people who keep coming back and performing. She's, you know, she started off as, I think, a replacement Elphaba in Wicked, and mm-hmm. you know, she's done a, a number of other shows. She was fantastic in Falsettos yeah. a couple of years ago, and oh, she could great. easily have been a winner for that. But I think this is her moment. All right, performance by a featured actor in a play: Bertie Carvel for Inc., Robin De Jesus for The Boys in the Band. Gideon Glick for To Kill a Mockingbird, Brandon Uranowitz for Burn This, and Benjamin Walker for All My Sons. This one's tight. 
go to bat for somebody, David. Well, as you say, it's as tight as Benjamin Walker's abs, <laughs> uh, which we saw. <laughs> Thank you for that. Uh, you know, I think that it's a really interesting character. For me, the standout performance by a featured actor in a play was not even nominated. It was Zachary Quinto in Boys in the Band. Mm -hmm. I think it takes real courage to play a character so abrasive, to make no concessions to soften him. I mean... There were moments in that where he was beyond sinister, and I think that he was incredibly compelling to watch. In the same way he was passed over for his work in Glass Menagerie a few years ago, I think it's pretty unjust that he was passed over for this one too. I think Robin de Jesus is terrific. Gideon Glick, I think, is wonderful in To Kill a Mockingbird. It's a tough category, not just because of his abs, but I think I would go with Benjamin <laughs> Walker. He was uh, great. I think he's really an underrated actor, and he brings a pathos to that character that I wasn't always aware of in past productions of All My Sons. And again, it's a very good ensemble. Jack O'Brien is very good with a large ensemble, and I think he keeps them unified. Tracy Letts does great work. Annette Benning does superb work. But Benjamin Walker you know, manages to stand out in that crowd. That, for me, is worth something. This category, probably more than any other, is a place where we might see a, a dark surprise. horse, an absolute surprise. I just can't imagine. I mean, Getting Glick was great in Significant Other. I don't feel he had that much to do in he, To Kill a Mockingbird. You see, I really liked him in To Kill a Mockingbird. Yeah. I loved the way he was giving a subtle kind of wink of the link to Truman Capote. We yeah. get this sense that this is a young boy who is going to grow into a gay man. I think all of that is very understated and, and just woven into the performance in quite subtle ways. I also think Brandon Aronowitz is terrific. I don't ever think I've seen him give an uninteresting performance. Mm -hmm. I think he's great in Burn This. For me, Burn This, the weakness is I don't think the play holds up particularly well. It's a tight one, but I am going to go in the end here with Bertie Carvel for Inc. All right, featured actress in a play, Fionnula Flanagan for The Ferryman, Celia Keenan-Bulger for To Kill a Mockingbird, Christine Nielsen, and Julie White, both for Gary, a sequel to Titus Andronicus, and Ruth Wilson for King Lear, the one actress nominated there. There is not a nomination this year, sort of somewhat surprisingly, for Glenda Jackson, who won last year. I think that this seems to really be, most people would agree, for the should and the will, Celia Keenan-Bulger. Yeah, absolutely. She, again, someone with a great history on Broadway in the last 10, 15 years. She has done very consistent work over a number of productions, both plays and musicals starting with the lovely 25th annual Putnam County Spelling Bee. And I think what she does playing Scout Finch is really interesting. It's hard for an adult to play a kid yeah, she's like without it being cloying. Yeah, she's like 41, 42, 43 years old, and she's playing an 8-year-old perfectly. But she never you never question no, the veracity no, no, no. of the performance. And I love Fionnula Flanagan's performance in The Ferryman as well. Yep. She may get some traction. The others, you know, I think are very worthy nominations, but I do think it's Celia Keenan-Bolders. Yeah. Best performance by a featured actor in a musical, Andre DeShields, Hadestown, Andy Grotolution for Tootsie. Good job on pronunciation. <laughs> Patrick Page for Hadestown, Jeremy Pope for Ain't Too Proud, and Ephraim Sykes for Ain't Too Proud. I think the gut reaction when you see something like this where you've got two pairs of people from the same shows, two from 80s Town, two from Ain't Too Proud, is that you sort of think the other guy has the advantage, except that in this case, Andre DeShields is such a beloved veteran, and then you have these two relative newcomers from Ain't Too Proud. I don't know how you pick between the two Ain't Too Proud guys who are both excellent as members of The Temptations, and I think Andy Crotolution is 
fine and Tootsie very good, but it doesn't feel like enough there to to merit a win. So the two guys from Hades Town are both excellent. Patrick Page with that booming voice as Hades, and then Andre DeShields as basically the MC of the production. Yeah, he's of. the storyteller. Yes. He guides us through. He's the messenger. I feel like it's got to be him, right? Uh, you know, it's hard to imagine a scenario in which he doesn't win. As you say, he's an absolutely beloved veteran of the industry with a history of 50 or so years in the business. He's in his 70s now. He hasn't been on Broadway in 10 years. He's never won a Tony. You know, he is a phenomenal force in not just African-American theater, but in theater in general. Mm. And I think it's a wonderful performance. It's flamboyant and showy, but it's also, it draws you in. There's a kind of conspiratorial aspect to it, to the way he draws you in and the way he's sort of invested in the story, but also detached from it. That requires a real balancing act. And I think he's pretty wonderful. But if there's a surprise here, I would think it's going to come from one of the Ain't Too Proud guys. And I love Jeremy Pope. I think doing that as we said, back-to-back performances in Choir Boy and Ain't Too Proud is, is really something and speaks highly of his energy and commitment at this young age. But I was blown away by Efren Sykes. I think the way he moves, the way he sings on stage, the pathos he invested in this very troubled, conflicted character, mm-hmm. I thought was great. His performance as David Ruffin, if I had to pick a dark horse, I would pick yeah. Efren Sykes. All right. Performance by a featured actress in a musical, Lily Cooper for Tootsie in the Jessica Lang part. Amber Gray in Hadestown, Sarah Stiles in Tootsie in the Terry Gar part, Ali Stroker in Oklahoma as Ado Annie, and Mary Testa as Aunt Eller also in Oklahoma. I thought Amber Gray was great in both The Great Comet and now again back with Rachel Trafkin in Hadestown. But I would be surprised based on the way things have broken so far if Ali Stroker is not the winner. And that would be historic in the sense that the first disabled actress in a wheelchair to win a Tony, that would be quite a moment, and I think that's where we're headed. Yeah, I got to agree. I don't think I had a more enjoyable time on Broadway at any point in this season than watching Ali Stroker absolutely jubilant while singing I'm Just a Girl Who Can't Say No. The idea of this woman in a wheelchair who is just with this sexuality exploding out of her. It was almost revolutionary, and it was such a high point in that show, which is often very melancholy, very downbeat, but, you know, this incredible celebratory song that she sings about her own sexuality I think is just great. And the performance is just so full of joy, so full of intelligence. Edo Annie can easily just be a ditzy... Slut. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, a ditzy slut. But, you know, I think here she is this this woman who is absolutely self-possessed and in charge of her own sexuality, in charge of her own choices. I really enjoyed that performance. But again, Amber Gray is phenomenal as Persephone. What a voice. What a voice. What a, you know, and I think that she has a special connection to the director, Rachel Chavkin, that has worked in Great Comet and in this show. You know, you can't take your eyes off her when she's on stage. And she in a sense, is the female compliment to Andre De Shields in yeah. that she has a certain MC quality yeah. in her performance as well. When she takes the mic and sings the first song after intermission and introduces the band as if it's a cabaret right. show, I think that's a great moment yeah. and a sort of adventurous I'd thing to do. I'd be thrilled for her if, if she won because she really is terrific. But I Either one of those yeah. two would be very, very worthy winners, but I do think Ali Stroker is going to take it. All right, we will see. All the results will start coming in on Sunday night at 8 p.m. Eastern. James Corden hosting the 73rd Tony Awards. David Rooney, thank you for doing this. Thank you, Scott. Always a pleasure. And now for my interview with Bob Mackey. 
Bob, thank you so much for doing this. It's an honor to have you on the podcast. Thank you. My pleasure. We always begin with just a few basics. Where were you born and raised, and what did your folks do for a living? Well, I was born in California, Los Angeles area, Monterey Park. My mother didn't really do much of anything. She didn't like the idea of ever having to work. She worked for a while, and the most she knew how to do was file. <laughs> and she hated it. And um, somehow she managed you know, to live off of... She had some stocks that her parents gave her because mm-hmm. they just thought she was hopeless, and she was about things like that. And uh, she lived off that for her whole life, really. And, and was your dad in the picture? Not much. Yeah. No, not much. They pretty much separated when a couple months after I was born. Yeah. And he went off to the war, the big war. And there I was. I didn't even see him until I was around six or seven. Really? I read that there was a strict grandmother in the picture. Is that true? Well, there was a grandmother, yeah. My father's mother, actually. And so that was perfect for my mother because then she didn't have to really take care of me. You know, she'd take me to amusement parks and movies and things, which is fine. She was sort of like my Auntie Mame, but not really much of a mother. (laughs) And I I know that sounds terrible, but, you know, and every now and then if I'd say no to her, she's but. Bobby, I am your mother. (laughs) And then you go, "Mm, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So the escape, it sounds like, you know, not the ideal childhood. So the escape, though, was the movies? I think it was like my college, really, just going and watching and watching and watching and, and not realizing what I was picking up on. And then by the time I was about 12, 10, 12, I realized I was learning from the movies. Which ones sort of made the biggest impression on you? Well, I mean, you know, the flashiest ones, of course, the MGM musicals, 20th Century Fox musicals. The Early on, it was always Carmen Miranda or Betty Grable or those 40s ladies because they were the most colorful and it was technicolor and they didn't look anything like my mother and my half-sister, <laughs> Patsy. So I just liked them, you know, yeah. I liked them. And then I would come home and I'd draw little pictures. I wouldn't draw exactly what I'd seen because I, you know, but I would do my versions. And that went on for years and years. And was it clear that what you were drawing, what you were focusing on were the clothes or it was just the whole ex- experience of that? the point? whole thing, yeah. but it was the clothes too, you know, because you draw a body, you put clothes on it. And they were always hotsy-totsy clothes. They had nothing <laughs> to do with... You know, and then I would put, I, I would draw all these pictures, and then I'd say, well, that could be for my sister Patsy, and this could be for my grandmother, right. and this is my Aunt B. And I would put names on them, and they would be, you know, they all looked like hawkers <laughs> <laughs> because they were, you know, what was I, you know, I was six or seven. Right. Well, that's. And, and they'd all get a big laugh out of it. And, Look at Grandma. <laughs> She's <laughs> looking good. Yeah. yeah. So you eventually dabbled in a few different colleges but left before graduating, and I wanted to ask, what had you studied and what prompted you to leave? Well, I only left one, really. I went to, like, a city college because I was, you know, I couldn't really get into college because my math was so terrible, Mm -hmm. and it never did get much better. (laughs) And so I had to go there to try to make that up because I couldn't get anywhere if I didn't have all that and go to accredited school and blah, blah, blah. And, of course, I went to the school. I got a scholarship. And then I was there for a couple of years. I won all the all the awards before my last year. So I just quit. Did I, I read, though, a, while you were there, that did Jane Mansfield wear one of your dresses? Well, she did, yeah. Was um, she a student there? <laughs> no. No, no. No, no. She was picked. It was an art school. Yeah. It was an art school that had a costume design department. And the art school had an art student's ball every spring. 
and Jane Mansfield and her husband, Mickey Hargitay, the muscle man, you know, they came and they were going to be the king and the queen of the art students ball, which is pretty fun. Yeah. And we had like a little contest and I sort of, I didn't turn in one. I turned in about 10 of outfits, (laughs) all different versions and stuff. I was ready to go already. They were pretty good. Actually, when I see them now, I go, "Mm, you know, you could make money doing that. So it was good. Anyway, they took pictures of me holding up fabric and doing thing. And she came in a suit because it was a school before you know it. She somehow had her suit jacket off and she held some fabric here. And then she undid her bra and flipped that behind her so she could push everything up. It was hysterical. And of course, all the art students who see naked women all the time because they're doing figure classes and stuff. But they were all hooting and hollering and up in the second story looking down. As you're saying she was topless. She was topless, but she wasn't bare topless, but she (laughs) might as well. Yeah, right, right. She had fabric, and she was pushing her boobies up. And, (laughs) yeah, it was funny, and it was really—we had a good time. And then we had to go fit her. Right. And she had this house in Beverly Hills right on Sunset Boulevard that had a heart-shaped pool. Special house. Got a lot of publicity. Right. You know, Mickey built this whole heart-shaped pool in the whole house. You know, one room was turquoise with a picture of Jane in a turquoise dress, big painting on the wall. And the next room was pink, and the next room was, you know. And she had a—they they were taking a shower before the fitting. We were going to fit both of them because they were going right. to, you know. She was going to be a Greek goddess, and he was—well, uh, he didn't have much This on. is once your design had already been chosen oh, as yes, the winner. Yeah, yeah, no, yeah, it was the yeah. winner, yeah. I mean, I didn't have any competition at that <laughs> school right at that time because everybody wanted to be a sportswear designer. Uh, okay. And, uh, you know, I said, it said costume design. That's what I'm here for. Well, let's stop there, though, because at what point did you decide— this was what you were going to pursue, and how did your— Oh, that was when I was 10 years old. I decided that. So to go off to this college, which I guess today is now California Institute of the Arts. It is. It is. It had a big Disney backing at the time. Yeah. And I thought a lot of the artists, that the early artists at Disney, had gone to school there. But then they took over when they just changed the whole school. So— I guess, had you not gotten the scholarship, how would your mom and grandmother have felt about you? I I don't know. I don't think either one of them cared what What you did. did, I mean, I was such a weird child that they just figured, well, you better just let him do what he does because (laughs) he's doing all right. Yeah. yeah. You know, and I got a scholarship, so that was good. Was the scholarship on the basis of your— And I didn't have any money, so that was good. That helps out the scholarship. Do you think the scholarship was on the basis of your sketching? Because you were obviously a really great drawer from early on. I was two years in this junior college that had a really good art department, Uh and I was already pretty good. I was making money doing illustrations and stuff around, and the people at the school thought, oh, boy, here we go. He's an illustrator. He could be, you know, advertising art, Mm -hmm. commercial art, and then I told him, oh, no, I want to come here to be a costume designer, so the art part was pretty strong to start with. It is interesting, though, because they're in some ways totally different skill sets to be able to draw that beautifully and to make costume designs. And you do well, both so well. Because I drew all the time. I, yeah. You know, I live with my grandparents and there weren't any kids around. There were no kids in the neighborhood to speak mm-hmm. of. You know, I saw kids at school. Right. But I was that weird child that didn't like sports. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Whatever. Anyway. Well, so the reason you ended up leaving college early was because... I went back in the fall for the next year, and they were saying, and this year we get to do the Capizio shoe competition, and we do this over here and this over there. And I'd won them all the year before, and I said, (laughs) 
it's time for me to get out of here. Right. I'll just quit. I'll get my portfolio together. And it was a good portfolio. Mm -hmm. And I had two portfolios, had one for commercial art. And I had another one that I put together for getting jobs in the studios as a sketch artist for designers. A lot of them didn't draw or they didn't want to, mm -hmm. you know, or they did huge films and they had to have help to do all the people and the crowd scenes and all that stuff. Anyway, I did about, I don't know, half a dozen to a dozen things that were, I thought, very movie-oriented. And mm -hmm. I had a friend who was a teacher in the school. I looked at his stuff, and I went, oh, okay, I can do that. And I did this one drawing. I did a whole lot of stuff, period stuff and everything. I did one drawing, a man in a tuxedo next to a blonde, glamorous woman in a blue beaded dress. And for the next couple of years, that one sketch kind of cinched every job I got. Wow. And so, so the jobs that you were getting, though, in that period were for movies or for other... For, for movies, yeah. The first job I got booked for, not the first one I yeah. did, actually, was drawing Marilyn Monroe for her last film that never got finished. Something's got to give, yeah. And that was quite interesting, you know, and terrifying. So you, know, you were drawing... For your first job. Oh, I can only imagine. Yeah. So I just want to kind of, because the chronology in my mind is a little muddled, because what came first, working with... Paramount in some capacity? as no, this? this was at 20th Century Fox. I got the job, yeah. but it wasn't going to start until March something, 12th. Yeah. I, yeah. And it's so funny how you remember those dates when yeah. it's so important. <laughs> and in the meantime, I got another job that I got a call. Can you come in and work for a couple of weeks for this guy who's doing a film in Europe? And he's designing the clothes and making them here for Charles Boyer, Glenn Ford, and Pope Lang. And... I said, yeah, sure, but you're going to only draw the men. And I'm going, oh, boy. Because you, know, you prefer to draw well, the women? Well, no, I was more used to drawing women. Okay. I, I thought, well, I can do it. I mean, I had been to art school. I mean, yeah. I could really do it, but it's tricky if you don't do it all the time. You know, all of a sudden your men look a little nelly, <laughs> and so you have to be real careful. Right. i got to look like really butch. Right. There's Glenn Ford and his <laughs> jean jacket and his jeans and different kinds of T-shirts and whatever, and right. Charles Boyer in his pinstripe suit looking right. like a European, you know, executive or whatever he was. But I did the job, and we rented space at Paramount in Edith Head's little suite of rooms and we offices. meaning that production that production yeah. yeah yeah and i just came to work and there i am in paramount you know in edith head's area and i'm going sheesh here we are in the first day i'm sitting there at the drawing board trying to draw and in runs judy garland said where's the women's room <laughs> <laughs> ladies room i said down the hall and, and i went oh, wow judy garland yeah you know, that was fun yeah and it was like that there was just full of people all the time did coming. you interact with edith head yeah, Edith, you know, she came in to see, you know, what this kid was doing. And she'd come in every day and check on me and see what I was doing. And before I know it, a couple of weeks later, well, he actually, I was doing the men's clothes. And then Frank Thompson, the designer, said to me, he says, I haven't got time to do Hope Lang's clothes, to draw those. I'll tell you what to do, and you do them for me. You can work an extra week or two. And so she was watching me do all this stuff. Because she didn't usually draw the men's clothes, she, or wasn't you know it was usually was that women's. to you like having God over your shoulder? I mean, she was the no, greatest I, of the no, movie she wasn't costumes. the greatest. Oh, who do you, I already knew. I I didn't think she was the best, but she was one of the smartest. Okay, she could do a really good looking movie, and she everybody was happy. They all got what they right, wanted, right. and she pleased everybody. If we designed something red for somebody to wear, they came and said, oh, I hate red. She, Who said red? <laughs> you know, it was one of those. And the next thing you know, I'd be drawing it in a different color. You know. Well, so, okay, so who was, in your mind, the greatest? 
I didn't work with the greatest, I don't think. I worked for Jean-Louis, who was really a wonderful, glamorous designer. He did, you know, Rita Hayworth and Gilda and all those movies at, oh, at Columbia. Great. And he did Dietrich's performance clothes, all those see-through dresses mm-hmm. and stuff. A little of that rubbed off on me. Yeah, yeah. And um, while I was working with him on the Marilyn Monroe film, one day he came in and said, here's the dress I want you to draw. You know, blah, 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 blah. And I did it. It was a gown, a see-through dress with diamonds all over it. It didn't tell me what it was for. When you're at that position, you don't have to know anything. It's none of your business. So I drew it, and um, a couple of weeks later, she was singing "Happy Birthday" to John Kennedy <laughs> in that dress. In that dress, and you know, which they, recently sold for like five million dollars. Yeah, I yeah, think. it did. Four it did. point something. Yeah. And and you know, and then they asked me, "Can you do some other sketches of her in right. that dress?" And I sold it on auction as well, and I made some money. So oh, wow. it wasn't the worst thing in the world. No. But everybody seems to want to say I designed it, and I didn't. I just drew what he asked me to draw. Well, so and that's your job. Usually, there's some designers that I work for it. Well, basically, eat it. She said, read the script. See what you think. You know, and I read it. And she said, what do you think she should be wearing here and here and here and here? And she said, she's going for an abortion here. What do you think she should wear? And I go, well, I don't know. You know, the stupidest questions, but I guess you have to, you know, when you're a designer, you have to think, well, she wouldn't put on a party dress and, right, and, right, and right. go do that. So it was interesting. And what she would do, she says, I'll be back after lunch. And she comes back. She looks, oh, this is cute. That's cute. Oh, oh. Mel Shavelson's in his office. I'm going to take these. She put pencils in her butt. As if she had done Like them. she just finished oh, them. My she God. scooped them all up and showed them. And sometimes they said yes. Sometimes they said no. And that was one of the most learning times of my life to see right. what something basically that I'd drawn, if they liked that or not, right. or if it worked or she liked it even. It's funny because people always talk about the fact that I think she had more Oscars than anyone else. But that was because anytime the department would win one, she got it. Now well, the individual. Well, yeah, gets. and but also she in those days they had two kinds of Oscars for costumes. They had a Technicolor movie yep. and black and white. Yeah. So very often, most of her Oscars, or a big chunk of them, and she has a lot of them. She was great. She knew how to do her interviews and her publicity and give recipes and you know. And she was on Art Linkletter's house party every week. <laughs> you know, she wanted everyone to know who she was. Right, and right. when they know who you are, very often when you're voting, you go down and you say, "Oh, Edith Head, she's always does a good job right. for her." They've even not even seen the movie. Right, right. You know, that happens. Right. So after these first few years of sort of essentially freelancing. How did you end up with what I think was the first steady job, I believe, beginning in 63 with the Judy Garland show, which, speaking of black and white, I think that was... That was black and white. CBS was still black and white at that time. So for you, how did you end up there? And I think that was the beginning of another very important relationship. Well, actually, I was working pretty regularly at Paramount. And then with Jean-Louis, I worked on some Doris Day movies and some all those kind of stupid glamour movies that had names that had nothing to do with the script. You know, it's just the thrill of it all. Right. And, you know, so they laid me off. It was April. And I thought, oh, it's April. The beach is good. You know, <laughs> and I was collecting for the first time unemployment, which I was delighted with. <laughs> and my mother, well, my mother, my stepmother more than my mother, my mother kind of like money just came. She didn't know where, you know, but my stepmother, who was an accountant, she says, well, how long? Well, how, this job, are you going to last? And I said, no, it just lasts till I finish it. And then I'm off. She goes, wait a minute. You know, that like that was right. really terrible. Right. Now you don't have a job. Right. But I said, no, I get unemployment because <laughs> I can go back to it again. And all of a sudden she realized I was making more 
just doing this beginning job at this thing than my father was mm-hmm. making at the Bank of America. I mean, uh, it was like not good. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> She's like, oh, okay. <laughs> and she ended up working for me eventually, you know. Really? In, okay. the, in the accounting office. But so Judy Garland show, you get there, and who well, was the no, head I'll tell you how that worked. I met a friend at the Costume Guild thing, and I got to know several of these young designers that were working. And, and you know, I was at the lowest, lowest level of work on that thing, and I was still considered an assistant sketch artist, whatever they call that thing, associate, maybe, I don't know. We went out to dinner a couple times, and I finally, I can go out to dinner with somebody and talk about things that I'm interested in, because usually... You don't just go out with people that you think you're going to have a hot date. <laughs> you know, it doesn't, it, usually there's nothing to talk about. Right, right. Anyway, he was hired to do the costumes for the Judy Garland show, but not Judy Garland. And it turns out that because Judy, who I saw going to the ladies' room, mm-hmm. had just finished a film in England with Edith that Edith had designed, and not very well either. You know, it was, it was an <laughs> awful looking film. Anyway, she was going to do Judy's costumes for this. Mm-hmm. And Edith didn't want to really do television. She's, you know, in those days, television was considered yeah, low class. Right, right. Yeah. So she came in, and the first show we taped, which was not the first one on the air, Edith decided that she would have like a little black leotard, just add skirts, you know, for the whole show. And this is a show they wanted to change her gown and her whatever, half a dozen times at least during the show. And the first show didn't look very good. And I said to Ray Agian, the designer of the show, of the rest of the show, mm-hmm. let's really dress those girls up in that Mickey Rooney number. Mm-hmm. The first show we had Mickey Rooney on, and we had all these glamorous, you know, kind of dancing showgirls and stuff. And I said, let's make them all look really special. And there's poor Judy in her little black dress, <laughs> which, well, you know, I mean, you have to fight for those things. Right. And so we did that. And by the next week, Ray was doing the costumes. Well, all of a sudden, Judy was not the easiest person to kind of corral and control. Because basically at that point of her life, she was, what, drinking a lot, doing a lot of drugs? Well, yes and no. I mean, when she was great, she was amazing, just amazing. She was fabulous. Mm -hmm. That's the thing about her is when she was good, she was the best actress ever. Mm -hmm. She was just fantastic, but she was just so screwed up with things and and insecurities and I don't know, you know. But Ray, now you're working closely with him. You guys hit it off? Well, we hit it off very well. In fact, we became very close friends. Mm -hmm. And so we did the show and I I ended up having to do all the chorus clothes for sure and a lot of the guest stars and we had the best guest stars ever. And because the show was kind of always in trouble, we had different directors, we had different choreographers, different set designers even. I mean, it just changed as we went along. And I met all these people and these are people that I ended up working with and for the next 20 years. Yeah. It was fabulous in that respect. And, and you the, met and Liza, the, I think, right? I met Liza. Liza was 18. Right. I think she had just finished working in New York in a Best Foot Forward or one of those shows. I think you had said in one of the interviews I read preparing for this that it was sort of through the experience of seeing Ray, who was dealing mostly with Judy on that show, seeing what that interaction was like, that you learned it's probably good to keep a little distance between 
yourself and your clients. Is that fair to say? Well, I always have. I mean, I've always been good friends with my clients, but I'm not their best, best friend. I don't rush over and sit at the end of the bed and cry with them. You know, when, when they, I just, it's just not what I do. Because he was getting like calls in the middle of the night. He did. Judy liked him a lot mm-hmm. and they had a very good relationship and he made her look, the clothes that we did for her were just like terrific. Yeah. And she'd gotten thinner, so she looked good in them. Mm-hmm. But you know, it was, it was tough several times in the middle of the night. Things happened on that show to that woman, and she'd be back rehearsing the next day. I mean, you know, off to the hospital, off to the... You know, yeah. It's just horrible. I think you said that she had one of the weirder figures that you had to ever design for. What was her... No, she's four foot 11. Yeah. That's a really short girl. Yeah. And long legs. She had these beautiful legs, but really short little body. Mm-hmm. And so it was hard. It yeah. was hard. But and, and somebody, when they're that small... Everything was small. If you see her in the old movies as a kid, she was tiny, yeah. you know. Five pounds looks like 15 Yeah. when you put it on. It just has nowhere to go. So I guess the big takeaway from your years working on that show were just, what, learning to work quickly and sort of on the fly? Well, anytime you do weekly television, you better work quickly or you're out of a job if yeah. you don't. I spent a lot of my life doing weekly television. Yeah. And sometimes more than one show a week. The first client that you really became personally associated with, I guess, would have been Mitzi Gaynor. I tell you, I love Mitzi Gaynor. That was, yeah. yeah, that was my first star lady that decided she was going to really let me do it. And this is like 1966. She's going to do a yeah. Vegas review. Yeah. What was, I mean, we now think of Vegas as the place for flashy showgirl type stuff. Was it already that? Or I, did yeah, you no, kind of, it was already. And yeah. she loved clothes and she wasn't happy about her designer she had before. I think he drank a little too much, but that's another <laughs> story. Anyway, we sat down and talked and I was a fan of hers watching her from the time she was like 18 in the movies, South you know, Pacific, she was like, yeah. well, South Pacific was, she was already a star mm. by then. But when she went to Fox, she was just a kid mm-hmm. and they were like grooming her to be yeah. a musical comedy star. But musical comedies basically declined in the next few years where there weren't very many. And if they were, they had to be a big one like South Pacific right, or something right. like that. So she wasn't getting the work she wanted. And so they decided to do a nightclub act. Mitzi Gaynor is Miss Show Business. Yes. She knows how to entertain. To this day, right? She, to this day. <laughs> she knows how to tell a joke. Right. She knows how to get a laugh. And she's fabulous. And she loves clothes. And she loves to change every single right. number she does. It, it's another look. And you don't wait 20 minutes to see her. She's out like within seconds. And it was on the basis of her Vegas review that you kind of first caught the attention of Carol Burnett, right? That's right, yeah. By 66, 67, Ray and I had done a special together. By this time, I was saying, if I'm going to work this hard, I have to get equal credit. So we got equal credit on that. He went off to London to do Dr. Doolittle, and I ended up doing the whole damn show. But we got the first Emmy ever for costume design, right? And that was fabulous. And so Carol Burnett had watched that special because it had everybody in the world on it. It had Jimmy Durante and the Smothers Brothers. This was Alice Through the Looking Glass? Alice Through the Looking Glass, yeah. And then I won, you know, we got Emmys. Yes. Costumes never won any Emmys. No, no. And then she went to see Ernie Flatt, the wonderful choreographer who was on the Carol Burnett show for the entire 11 years, was doing Mitzi's act. So he wanted Carol and Joe, Carol's husband, mm-hmm. to come up to Vegas and see it. So between the two things, yeah. I was pretty much hired without ever talking to me. Right. 
And so just to remind people, this is 11 seasons <laughs> that you did with Carol Burnett Show. You've said, quote, not everything was designed. I would rent a lot of stuff, but we were doing 50 to 70 costumes per episode, and we had a show every well, week. We designed a lot of clothes, believe yeah, me, for, yeah. for a five-day schedule where you start on Monday and you're shooting on Friday. A lot was designed. But... You know, if it was like a lot of Napoleonic uniforms yeah. or something, you go to Western Costume and get them because who's going to have time to do that? But 50 to 70 costumes per well, episode we, is unbelievable. Well, we did musical numbers just to open the show quite often. Mm -hmm. We did a big one at the end always. And then one little sketch and blackouts and all kinds of crazy stuff in that show. It wasn't like one story. How big a team, though, would you have working under you at that time? I had, I don't know, like a half a dozen... I had one man I went to high school with, mm -hmm. and he came in, and I said, I want you to help me with the men's clothes, because so many of those we have to rent mm -hmm. because of uniforms and whatever. Mm -hmm. And he was so talented to start with. I'd have a meeting on Monday morning, and by Wednesday, Thursday afternoon, it would be on a rack ready to go and fitted and, and everything. He was great. And then Ray and I opened a shop called Elizabeth Courtney Costumes. Elizabeth Courtney was the lady that had made all of Judy's clothes on the Judy Garland mm -hmm. show. And she was the lady that had done all the work at Columbia for Marlena Dietrich and Rita Hayworth and everybody. She really understood how to make beautifully made, glamorous clothes. Mm -hmm. And that's what I needed. Yeah. That set us off in the right direction because we were the first year on the Carol Burnett show, I was having a terrible time working out of a costume house. The quality wasn't good enough and it was just crazy. I mean, the shows looked okay, but it got better when we have somebody that really knew what they were doing. I have to ask you, of course, about a couple of the most iconic costumes from that show. <laughs> okay. You know where this is going. Yeah, I know. Um, so <laughs> let's start with the Gone with the Wind parody where it was called Went with the Wind with <clears throat> Starlet O'Hara and, of course, the curtain rod dress. So whose idea was this? It was mine. They wrote the script. It was a funny sketch to start with. It was a long sketch. It was it had a commercial in the middle, I think. It was that long. Yeah. And Dinah Shore played Melanie and, <laughs> and Harvey Corman played Rat right, Butler. Right, right, right. You know, and it was just, it was funny. And, and Vicki Lawrence was Butterfly McQueen. I mean, she was just like fantastic and funny, <laughs> funny, funny. No blackface, none of that. But, you know, she might as well have had blackface. It was, she was, she was good. You know, I read the script and said, well, she takes down the drapes and runs up the stairs and comes down in the drapes. And you're going, well, I could make an outfit out of the drapes like they did in the movie. And even in the movie, when she comes out dressed in the drapes, you start to laugh because you say, <laughs> yeah, sure. She made that outfit. Of course she did. Yeah. How clever is Scarlett O'Hara? Right. It just wasn't coming. You know, it just wasn't working. I had an outfit that I had made for another special that was like a version of the one from the movie. It was part of a musical number. And it was about fashion and whatever. And there it was, the green. It was all ready to go. It would have fit Carol. But I said, that's not funny. You know, I was putting on an outfit that looks like the one in the movie. That's not funny at all. What am I going to do? And it isn't the only thing on the show. There's a million different things on that one show. Mm -hmm. And I'm, that's the one thing that was driving me crazy. And finally, it came to me what to do just to put the rod in, you know, and hang it on her. And Carol could pull it off better than anybody. She must have been so blown away by I mean, well, that's she, a great contribution. I, well, I had her come in and I said, I have to show you. I think this is going to work. And she started to laugh. Yeah. She's just like, you know, this is ridiculous. <laughs> And we kept it a secret, kind of, so, you know, Harvey, the first time he saw it, wouldn't... Right. Well, first of all, I think 
she showed him because she didn't want him to break up. <laughs> But usually he would. Right, right. You know, but well, that got one of the biggest laughs, I think, biggest, on the show's history. Biggest right? ever. It was the funniest time. I usually was never on stage, but I was up at the top of the stairs because her dresser was like five foot tall and this tiny little woman. And she's up at the top of these stairs you have to climb a ladder to get to, to put the thing on her so she could come down. We never cut on those shows. Mm. We would do a whole chunk, a whole sketch, and then they would cut and change the scenery because we had no fly space. I said, I'll go up. I'll get it on her. We'll get it on her. We'll get the whole thing on her. Right. I'll help you. And so we stood there as she walked down the stairs. And the place just like, it was like vibrant. It was like, what do they call that thing in the movie theater where everything shakes yeah, and yeah, the music yeah, yeah, is loud? Yeah, yeah. It was like that. It was weird. <laughs> That's cool. Yeah. Well, and I heard you heard some feedback <laughs> From the actual Gone with the Wind costume designer? Yeah, Walter Plunkett, who yeah. designed that whole movie and was a wonderful designer of period clothes through all the 40s and the 50s and the 60s. I mean, he was really, really good. He wanted a sketch. He says, could I have a sketch of that? He loved it. Of that yeah. outfit. Yeah. And I gave it to him. And then he gave, he was funny. He gave me a sketch of me in a race with Edith Head, <laughs> which, which I have to this day. I mean, this, I treasure it. It's That's like awesome. a little cartoon of me and a cartoon of Edith. And I've got, I'm holding on to feathers and beads and, and she's got her Oscars under her <laughs> arm. You know, because the men in Hollywood, most of the men designers in Hollywood just hated her. Hated. They hated her. She was such a publicity hound and, <laughs> and was more important than the actual work right. as a rule. I liked her. I liked working with her because right. I got to design more. Right. But the men, any men that you ever talked to about Edith, it was like their eyes. They just get furious. <laughs> One other costume from the Carol Burnett years, Mrs. Wiggins, Dippy's secretary. Well, Tim Conway, the late Tim Conway, who was brilliant, wrote that sketch and wrote it for himself and for Carol. And he wrote it as an elderly old lady, you know, I mean, just who was the secretary and couldn't get it together. And we had done so many sketches about old folks, Harvey and Carol and Carol, and then everybody would put on their gray wigs and their, you know, their print dresses and their body pads and be old people. And I said, you know, we've done so much of this. And there was a group called the Gray Panthers at the time. I said, the Grey Panthers have been sending you letters, and they're not happy. <laughs> Can't we do somebody different than that? Because it's gotten so it's not really funny anymore. Mm -hmm. And she agreed with me. And she said, well, what should we do? And I said, let's dress like those temps that come in, <laughs> that sit at the desk and watch the clock and do their nails and don't get much done and don't know how to do anything. <laughs> And so we gave her a Farrah Fawcett hairdo and a push-up bra and a tight, tight, tight skirt. So that she had to kind of shuffle. Well, she had to walk with her knees together. When I said, now stick out your butt. You know, it was like one of those things. Right. And she goes, oh, I get it. Okay. And it became a regular. Very often, certain characters in the show became regulars. But sometimes we'd say, oh, we think this can be a regular and we'll do a whole character. And then it just lays there. No, it doesn't get repeated. That's great. But the same thing happened when she was doing her impression of, like, Gloria Swanson in Sunset Boulevard <laughs> as Nora Desmond, she was called. Nora There wasn't right. much of a difference right. in, in name. So you did those 11 years with the Carol Burnett Show. Then you were doing Mama's Family and all kinds of other things with well, her Ma over the years. Mama's Family, I did with Rhett Turner who I later worked with a lot on the Sunny and Cher show, but I had established the look of the Mama's Family group. And so Joe Hamilton, who was Carol Burnett's 
husband at the time, he gave me some money every week just for having established the original. Mm-hmm. So I basically didn't do Mama's Family, although I did get an Emmy yeah. with Rhett. <laughs> and we tied with Dynasty, which was really funny because this was this was like low-end, low-class, <laughs> funny clothes. And there was Dynasty with all its beads and shoulder pads and whatever, you know. Right. Well, what was it? The, I mean, I guess you and Carol to this day seem to have a very special Bond, what, why do. do you think you really hit it off to the extent that you would work for all of those years together? Well, when you, I know you were also doing other things simultaneously, and oh some yeah. of those I'll, I'll mention in a, a second. Lot. But, I mean, that's a pretty well, long time. we were similar in many ways. You know, her grandmother brought her up. Her parents were both troubled and alcoholic and whatever, and so they lived in the same maybe apartment house, but she and her grandmother lived together, mm-hmm. and they went to the movies a lot. So she knew all these movies. She's a little older than me, so she knew some that I didn't really know Mm -hmm. that well. But basically, when we would do our movie takeoffs, which we did many after a while, you know, really a lot, we really got it. And I said, well, what if you do this? And then I made her special eyebrows for Joan Crawford. (laughs) (laughs) You know, in the 50s, Joan Crawford, you know, the eyebrows just became like caterpillars. They were ridiculous. (laughs) And I think they really grew. They were real. Really? You know, I went to the wig lady, and we made little ones on wig lace, and they glued them on. You know, it was so much fun. And she has the best time. She would do anything for a laugh, as long as it's a good laugh. Right, right. We just had her on the podcast a few months ago, and she was— Is she uh, the best? She's singing your—absolutely the best, but also it was fun to hear her talk about you and now get to hear you talk about her. Oh, Well, that's fun. I mean, I—but we really—she trusted me so, and I said, no, oh, don't black that tooth out. Black the one over here. It's funnier when you (laughs) smile if that one's out. The center one, I think, is just like an old hillbilly number. But I mean, is when is it your sense? I don't I don't have the sense that that many stars of a TV show or a movie have that much trust and willingness to work with their costume designer. What stars have have shows like that? No, where, there's where nothing. they constantly change characters and and don't mind looking bad or, or funny or weird or whatever. She would do anything. What's the closest thing today? Saturday Night Live. I mean, that's well, Saturday it. Night Live is is it certainly owes a bit of debt to the Carol Burnett show. And all those people that graduated from there, it's so funny, just idolized Carol Burnett. Yeah, yeah. And and because of that, all of a sudden I have, you know, Tina Fey and and, and Amy Poehler all coming over and say, oh, Bob Mackie, blah, 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 blah. You know, and it's like, really? You even know who I am? (laughs) But they're so funny. They really know what we've done. and, And it's always good. For me, I mean, at least somebody's watching. Figuring, you know. <laughs> well, so it was in the midst of the, I think, quite early in the Carol Burnett show run that you first crossed paths with one share, right? I mean, <laughs> yeah. I, and we should just, before you even elaborate on that, I thought one of the really, one of the perfect quotes she has said about you, I think recently in the context of the share show, somebody was interviewing her and she said, without Bob Mackey, I would have been a peacock without feathers. <laughs> She's quote. quite poetic, isn't so she? That was pretty funny. But how did so? How did you two first meet, and, and what were your first impressions of her? Well, I, you know, I knew about her as as Sonny and Cher when they were had their height of, you know, that half a dozen hit records that they had, and they made a lot of money. And then all of a sudden, it was a novelty, and it just kind of and they looked funny. They were like the world's first hippies, visually. <laughs> And I remember doing numbers. I worked on the Hollywood Palace for a while. We did a number of elegant people and street people. And, of course, they all looked like Sonny and Cher that I dressed (laughs) them, you know. 
so I knew who they were, and I thought, oh, so they're coming on, and they're going to be in the finale, and it's a showboat finale. Coming on Carol Burnett. Carol, on the Carol Burnett show. They used to have people, the first year, we would have, like, like young pop stars of sorts on the Carol Burnett show for that younger audience, because they weren't sure who their audience was mm-hmm. or would be. Mm-hmm. So in she walks. And I'm thinking she's going to be this big hulking girl with kind of gothy-looking hippie clothes. She had a little mini dress on. She had little hair and pigtails, and she's the most adorable thing ever. And you know, and then she she put on her little costume that we were doing for the for the showboat finale. And I thought, oh, look at that little figure. Oh my <laughs> God, she's beautiful. And she was she was kind of tan. It was summertime, and and I thought, well, she's cute. That's 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 fine. And later on, she was looking at me. We were going, we were, I was fixing a, just a little broken thread on a beaded dress. And she's, oh, I'd like to have a beaded dress one day. <laughs> Which, where we, you hear it now, you just right. laugh. You go, yeah, <laughs> 6,000 dresses later. Right, right, right. Um, she says, but we can't afford it right now. They were going through a kind of that. Not, low period. That yeah. low period of people knew who they were, but but they weren't getting booked. They weren't selling records. Right. It was It was tricky. And that was at the time that they... Went off to Vegas and redid the whole the whole thing and and learned to do comedy and and it you don't learn overnight you it, it comes you know you have to find out what works and Sonny was brilliant about that but even as early as that first encounter on the Carol Burnett show she was expressing an interest in working with you at some point or having you no, design she liked, her clothes? No, she liked me. Yeah. Actually, she thought I was cute. <laughs> there you go. You well, know, I'm I, not, I, I mean, I... I was younger. You know, I was younger then, and, and I was all... It was summer. I was tan, yeah. and I had... My hair was all curly and blonde, and, yeah. and she thought, oh, here's cute. She, did she try to put a moves on not you? Not really, not no. really. She just liked me, Yeah. you know, and she thought... Oh, he's young. He knows. Yeah. She doesn't. She never had any any confidence in anybody older, and for her, older was over thirty. <laughs> you know, they they really, it really was at the time. She says, you know, I'm never going to live past thirty. I just don't. It's not worth it. Uh, you know, I'm not great. Yeah, okay. Well, and I was just I was pushing that direction very quickly at the time, and I went. Well, whatever she says, oh, Sonny's already thirty-four, or whatever. You know, and, and just, but she's saying. But she was a child. One you know? day, Bob Mackey, you're going to design clothes for me. Well, pretty much. I think in her mind she thought yeah. that, and then all of a sudden she and Sonny were cast on some specials that I was I was booked for. This is like a few years later now. Just maybe a couple of years, yeah. a year or two. There was two or three things that I did with her, and then then they were making a little more money. And could you could you do this? And I gave her an estimate of what we could do, and showed her sketches. And she, oh, Sonny wasn't about to spend that money at right, that right. point. So I said, well, when you're ready, I'll be ready. Right. Don't, don't worry. <laughs> and she always liked what I did for her on these specials because she wasn't paying for that. You right. see, right? And by '71. I got this call from Cher. She says, I'm doing this TV show for the summer, summer replacement, and I want you to do the clothes. I said, oh, Cher, I'm going on vacation. And, uh, but I ended up doing it. Because you just she, she was but the thing, relentless? <laughs> summer replacement shows, and I did several of them in mm-hmm. those days because I wasn't, the, you, know, I'm, you know, in the summer, you don't, everyone's on vacation, right. so you take the job. And nobody ever had enough money. Mm-hmm. Usually had to shop it if you could. Mm-hmm. And um, and I said, fine, you know, we'll do it. But then it was such a good, the, the producers were so good. This and was they, the Sonny and Cher show. The Sonny and Cher show. And they had all these great ideas. And, and Laugh-In had already made its 
place on the scene. So we knew that things were different then. You had quick, quick, quick cuts and lots of little gags and things, and, and it worked beautifully for them. And for you, it actually was kind of convenient because you're still doing the Carol Burnett show. Where right. were they in relation to each other? Well, they were next door. On they the were CBS? On the same, they were at adjoining studios. You had to go through the men's room to get to one or the other <laughs> or the ladies' room right. and share just because she just, you know, wanted, she would walk through the men's room. So I'm coming through, boys. And all these guys at the urinal <laughs> flinching. <laughs> but, but it was, and she would just laugh. She thought it was funny. Right. You know? Well, one of the things I couldn't quite wrap my head around, I, I read that you said that Carol Burnett and Cher, quote, were almost identical in measurements, close yep. quote, and it's so you true. would trade outfits? Well, in the first, in the beginning, there wasn't any budget, and Carol had been on the air already since 67. So Carol had, you know, had a Minnie Mouse costume. If Cher needed a Minnie Mouse costume, it fit her perfectly. They had the same measurements. They, had, they were the same height. They were the same sign. But they don't look anything No, alike. who would have thought? But yeah. nobody, you know, Carol has a whole other, other, uh, whatever it is. Persona. That, a yeah. Persona. She's like, like the funny lady next door who's quite chic, but, but not ultra glamorous right. like that. And so it was always funny when they would share, they would, they would do shows together over at Carol's show. Mm-hmm. And then she, Carol would come over and do a whole, a whole show with Cher where she would, and they worked great together. They, yeah. they were so different. Yeah. And yet. Yet they they could sing together. They right. could do all kinds of comedy, non-threatening. To yeah, each it was other, yeah. it was quite quite fabulous. Some of those early early shows you can still see. They're coming out with a whole a whole collection of Sunny and Shares and Share uh, cool. shows from that period. Were you doing a lot with Sequins prior to working with Share? Where how did no. Sequins become? No, 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 no. Sequins. You know, everyone says you know like Sequins come out of my blood or whatever. <laughs> I don't know that. It, it just happened that she was glamorous and fun. You know, I used them where I needed them. But was, Cer- it was certainly her Mitzi Gaynor had her share of them in Vegas. Yeah, right. But but that that was just you do it in the right way for the right person. Now people seem to think all I all I do is that. But it was because it, of the share. Because show. the share show is where. Yeah, yeah. Uh, right. So can I ask you just about a few of these again, just like we did earlier? Just like first thing that comes to mind about a few of these iconic dresses you did with or outfits with Cher. Let's start with the 74 Met Gala. This is the sort of nude (laughs) (laughs) one that caused the stir. Yes. You escorted her. Well, it did. It did cause a bit of a stir. It it originally, let me see if I can remember when it came right out. Nobody had really seen her in this dress. It was photographed for Vogue magazine for their holiday issue. Mm -hmm. The Met Ball used to be and it wasn't anything like it is now. It was just a party and a, and a wonderful exhibit of mm-hmm. clothes. And it was the Hollywood exhibit. Diana Vreeland had come out to Hollywood and gathered up things from the archives and whatever. And and also she's looking over. She'd seen the, you know, share. She'd already been on for a few years by that time. It was 1974 that the Met mm-hmm. Ball was. So she looked at all our clothes and the way they were made and how beautifully they were made. I mean, they were like couture clothes. And she just got very excited. So all of a sudden, here I am, practically a beginner. I had, you know, I had share outfits in there at Carbonetta. I had Barbara Streisand outfits in, in that exhibit. It was fabulous for me. Because you were already working with Barbara too? Yeah, we, yeah, we did. I'm trying to think now. So 
It was in Funny Lady. Yeah. Oh, yeah, right. Funny, Funny Lady. Oh, and, your first Oscar and nomination? We, and, no, yeah, second. That's right. It came out in 75, but it re- I mean, whatever. We glossed over. You'd already had an Oscar nomination for Lady Sings the Blues. Lady With Diana Ross. With Diana yeah. Ross. Then yeah. three years later for Funny in Lady. In 68, I did a big special with her and got another Emmy. Oh, my gosh. So, this so is, I have nine Emmys now. Yeah. So, and, you know, it's kind of like... And one and one Tony nomination. Yes, well, <laughs> then that, that we'll update that in a few days. Well, uh, we'll see. I don't know. Who but knows. okay, so the and the, the dress from the Met Ball also was the same one that was on the cover of Time a year later. It wasn't a year later. It was just a few months. Just a few months. Yeah, and you see, at that point, Sonny and Cher had broken up, and I took her to the Met Ball. Right. And it was fun. And she had done the photo session for Richard Avedon in the dress. And nobody paid that much attention. It was in vogue and it was black and white. And all of a sudden, and so we, we send her off to, <laughs> I, I went with her to the, to the Met Ball. And, you know, both of us were looking pretty good. We were young and uh, whatever. And people were like, oh. Oh, because what was and a visible? Thousand photographers all of a sudden appeared. Just sort of, if somebody hasn't, you know, if they if they're trying to visualize what we're talking about, it's a nude colored, but also there's quite a bit that's visible, right? Well, a nude, very sheer dress, right? All beaded and and then with little little feathers, uh, vulture feathers. Everybody thinks it's ostrich snot. They're all vulture feathers, stripped vulture. Right. And so was that a dress that you were particularly, or not a dress, well, it but was an outfit? Well, it's one that I did that I wanted to, to make a little bit of a noise when we when we were in Vogue magazine. Yes. The Vogue magazine layout was interesting. It started at the turn of the century and worked its way up through the through the decades mm-hmm. to the 19, I don't know, what was it 1970s, I guess. You know, it was futuristic right. or what, whatever. Anyway, anyway, she wore. She, I said, "What do you, what do you think we should wear to the, you know, to the Metropolitan?" And she said, "Oh, I want to wear that new dress." Well, of course, it was new. I mean, it was it was so see through. Right. And all these kind of divas of the moment were there, dressed up but not that good. You know, <laughs> the the Bianca Jaggers right, and, right, and, right. The, and the Marissa Berenson's and all these ladies that were of that moment in time, they were the hotsy totsies. <laughs> and, you know, we, we sat at Dion Freeland's table and she had Paulette Goddard, old forties movie star yeah. there. And, and I, I just had the best time that night. And of course I had stuff in the exhibit and she got photographed by a million. I mean, sure, every, yeah. fo- every photographer there went, oh my God, now we can really do something. <laughs> and it was in every paper the next day. But like, not everyone, Carol Burnett's not going to have worn that outfit. Was no, it Cher no. that would want to push the edge or was it you encouraging her to? No, How it, it was Cher, but Cher yeah. could wear anything. There was nothing on Cher's body at that moment in time that ever hung over or wasn't she could be stark naked and wasn't vulgar. Right, right. You know, it's one of those beautiful bodies. Well, so— And you don't have that forever, but, you right. know. Right. Well, the, the the two Oscar dresses we got to talk about, 1986, when she's been snubbed <laughs> for a mask, now she's got to present, and right. she's not happy with them, right? Well, she she had been doing these movies, masks. She just was a little motorcycle chick. And then the other one, she wore jeans and sweatshirts, um, silkwood. And, you know, she hadn't been her glamorous self for a while. At all. And I said, well, what do you want to, well, how do you want to look? I knew she didn't want to look just in an evening gown, but I said, well, how, how would you, what would you like to wear? Well, I don't want to look like a housewife in a, in, <laughs> in a, you know, in an evening gown. And I said, I don't think you will, dear. Yes. But she says, let's do something Indian like we used to, because she was kind of, had done half breed and all of that. 
now she can't even wear the war bonnets anymore because the Indian ladies are getting upset. So only, cultural men, only men can wear that. Yes. But I mean, this is like 40 some years later. Yeah. They decided, well, a lady shouldn't wear that. <laughs> well, you know, it's a little late, don't you think? And then uh, two years later, when she won for Moonstruck, she had quite an outfit as well. She did. Another kind of see-through-y, right. glamorous, but but very share like And there are a lot of people who are just horrified, saying, well, you know, the fashion people, well, that's not fashion. And I said, and I said to somebody who asked me about it, I said, no, it's not fashion. It's her. That's, <laughs> that's her. That's what she wanted to wear. I didn't push it on her. In fact, very often I'd say, are you sure you want to go this far? Yeah, yeah. And what do you think was driving her to do that? Would she like the attention or she wanted to enjoy it while she had the body for that or what both yeah you know and and she looked good it never yeah. you could never say she didn't look good in no it. no she looked amazing and got that girl knows how to get press <laughs> <laughs> you know she and there you know there's poor donna michi who received the award when she when she gave it out it would she had that black mohawky dress right. and bare midriff and all this black and i mean she she looked like you know, the Grim Reaper, right? <laughs> right off the reservation. And there was photographs. Don Amici said the next day, he said, if she hadn't been there giving me that award, they, they wouldn't have printed any pictures of me. <laughs> so he was happy. He, was, <laughs> he okay. was very happy. So if I mention just a few of these other clients of yours, just the, can you share the first thing that comes uh, to mind? Just a sentence or two. I'll, I'll try. That's not my best. Well, we'll give, moment, it, we'll give it a go. I'll, I'll give it a try. We mentioned already that you first worked with Diana Ross in that there was a special, I think in 1969. And then right. you did Lady Sings the Blues and right. right through. Yeah. And I worked with her a lot for several years. Now she does her own. Now she does. Okay. But yeah. I think you'd said she would borrow Cher stuff, but like, well, all right, she, Diana Ross. Diana Ross and Cher became really close friends. In fact, they even shared a boyfriend at one point. <laughs> I mean, not at the same time, but, but, you know, it was a cra that crazy guy, Gene Simmons, Oh yeah, yeah you yeah. know, with the big tongue. Right. Anyway, he, uh, <laughs> he was Cher's boyfriend for a smart, Gene Simmons is really a smart guy and she needed to be with a smart guy. Right. And then I guess it didn't work out. And before you know it, he was, he was hanging out with Diana Ross. So don't ask me. I wasn't there. <laughs> All I know is what I read in the paper. Right. All right, so that's her. Barbara Streisand, we talked about you got the Oscar nomination for Funny Lady. Funny Lady, but which she, is I think you've said in other interviews, this is not going to break any news, uh, nothing nobody's oh heard before, but I, well, she's a, 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 a little bit difficult. Well, it's not difficult. She just, I mean, from the, she was on the Judy Garland show, and, and there's this new girl, 21 or whatever she was, and she'd bought some Italian shoes, and they, the, they were white, and they didn't match her outfit. And she never had shoes that expensive in her life at that point. Now, of course, she has everything. But, and I said, well, I can dye them down for you. You can? And she couldn't, she, she, she wouldn't trust me. And I said, well, I have the dye downstairs. And she's, all right. So she goes with me all the way down into the wardrobe department. And I mixed the dye. And we had a little sample of the color. Then I, and I put it on, on a piece of the satin from her shoe that, that comes with the shoes and got it right and I was going to dye them, and she took the, the dauber away from me, and she dyed them herself. 
standing there and I thought, oh, well, yeah, that's just the way she is. You can't, you can't change that. That's, you know, talk about control <laughs> and always questioning everything, right, everything, right. everything. But that's Barbara, you yeah, know, yeah. you don't, you don't worry about it. The woman was smart, 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 still smart. Of course. And uh, has, has great sense of, of how she wants things to look. Tina Turner, I think that she and Cher had worked a lot together as well, right? And now this was when Ike was just left the picture. Well, he was there. First time I saw Tina Turner, she was with the Ike and Tina review, you know, with the girls and Ike and Tina. And I thought, wow, look at her. That's a star. That's not a backup girl. That's a star. And then, then he made her a star. You know, used to you know, I can Tina review with Tina Turner. I mean, you know, she was more exciting than he ever was. Mm -hmm. And then he was, you know, he wasn't a good guy in many ways. And so she was trying to leave him and she was being booked into variety shows and thinks she's a good entertainer. She's mm -hmm. unbelievable. And they were kind of going from hotel to hotel, she and her assistant. So he couldn't find her. And it was a little tricky. And then they decided to to she she needed to make some money and, and had a nightclub act. Yeah. And and I dressed her up for the nightclub act and I gave her all kinds of crazy outfits because right. she always she'd come in and she'd bring old kind of not expensive evening gowns, but one she'd find in Paris and these little shops and things. Not not couture. Right. And um, she wanted to make them more more cave woman like and I said okay right. you know and we put it on and I'd start cutting and pinning and I'd cut away pieces and make it ragged and and that became kind of her look and before I knew it I was designing stuff for her right people always ask you about the women but what about Elton John I mean yeah, I, you said a, I, I dressed him it? like I dressed him like sort of a male showgirl close quote. well not really <laughs> you know he, I, I said to him, I said, I had done some things for him on the, on the share special with Bette Midler and, and Elton. And that's a great show. If you get a chance to see it, it still works beautifully. Mm -hmm. And he said, would you ever do clothes for me? And I said, well, sure. I'd love to. Uh, what, what kind of things would you like? Cause I didn't, you know, he, he wore overalls and little t-shirts and little jackets and kind of, you know, he, he was like a little Dickens character almost at that time. <laughs> he was, he was kind of rounded, but, but he wasn't chubby. He was just, it was good, but, but he wanted to dress up and he loved glitter and he loved jewelry. I mean, the, the, this man used to go out and buy diamonds and give them to people cause he just loved buying them or whatever. I don't know. <laughs> anyway. And I, I said, well, what, what would you like me to do for you? He said, well, I'd like some things like shares. And I went, oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, are you sure? And so I, I drew some things up, you know, jumpsuits that had holes that had mirrors around them. And, and one time he had a big, big feather cape that went clear across the stadium stage. Wow. And he was carried into the stadium <laughs> by this practically naked Mr. World black man. And who became later became a, my my trainer at the gym, and I heard the whole all the all the good stories. Anyway, that's another story. Anyway, and so he carried him in and set him down, and he had like an aviator cap of just mirrors, like like a mirror ball, and the lights were hitting it. It, it was pretty pretty fun. He loved that that's because great. you know this is somebody who sits at a piano and just plays one song after another and sings them. It's exciting, but he wanted more than that. He wanted to be, you know, it's like it was like a new age. Liberace at yeah, the time. Yeah, yeah. In fact, in the movie, I just saw the movie the other day. Yeah, uh, what do you think? He is asking his mother something, and she's sitting there in the television watching Liberace over here, and she's not uh, approving of him, <laughs> uh, poor Elton at all. And I'm thinking, yeah, 
Okay, I get that. (laughs) (laughs) For the Oscars, in addition to the three nominations, Lady Sings the Blues, Funny Lady, and Pennies from Heaven, you also worked with them in other years. I know that in 88, I guess you did a bunch of costumes for them and got an Emmy nomination for that. Then you did— For For who? For the at the Academy Awards. Oh, the well, and, but then there was another thing with where when Whoopi Goldberg was hosting in '99, she comes right. out in the. Well, I used to do those those shows, yeah. all those musical numbers that everybody in New York hates because you're on it. You know, you're watching it at midnight. It's just <laughs> horrible. But now things have gotten a little better. But so okay, so those were some things you did with the Oscars. But other outside the box things, I mean, you did Barbie. People forget that you did, sometimes forget that you did well, Barbie. Well, Barbie was just like a, a joke kind of at the beginning. Yeah, sure, I'll do Barbie. And they had all the 7th Avenue designers would do, you know, an Oscar de la Renta Barbie and a, and a Donna Karen Barbie and whatever. And I said, yeah, sure, I'll do a Barbie. I said, but, you know, I can't just do a cocktail dress. <laughs> I've got to do something that people expect me to do. Otherwise, why do a Barbie to start with? So uh, what did that mean? Well, I did a I did a Barbie that was kind of share like, but because they weren't paying her to be share to right, be share, right, right. I made her blonde, <laughs> completely blonde, which share is a lot of the time now. But right, right. Anyway, it's it was kind of gold and it was it, very glamorous, and the hair was pulled back and had a cone with a big long blonde ponytail. The doll came out the next. I don't know, whenever, six months later, whenever they do it, you know, it's got to all be made in China and whatever. <laughs> but all of a sudden, Madonna was doing her tour, and she had plopped this big blonde ponytail with a cone. And it was like the doll looked like a Madonna doll. <laughs> and it became this huge That's selling like, uh, doll. Yeah, yeah. And all of a sudden, they said, would you do more for us? You know, So I was doing these sort of like... Like Barbie meets Las Vegas meets whatever every year. <laughs> Probably introduced for a, lo- you to a, for a lot of years. New group of people, yeah. Forty some dolls later, but I don't do it anymore. One thing that I read, which I was surprised to discover, was you said, "quote The fashion world never really accepted me. I was always a costume designer, not a fashion designer." Close quote. And I know that you had tried. I think from eighty two to ninety three, you'd had a studio in on Seventh Avenue, right? Right. But, no, we did good business, but they always they just always thought that I was I don't know, you know, th- that it was too glamorous or too theatrical. And then, of course, I couldn't I couldn't stand to do a show, yeah. a fashion show without doing a finale that kind of like like made him wake Blew up and, away, yeah. and, and have a good time. And their show pieces and you'd have a few pieces that you never sold. You just it was kind of good for press or whatever. But has that changed with time? Do people I mean, it, it's crazy to me. I think fashion designer. I think of you. I, I can't imagine that uh, <laughs> you're saying that the within the industry, there's still that kind of snobbery. Oh, uh, well, no, it's kind of changed now. Recently at the, at the Met Ball, I, I met all these European designers mm-hmm. that were they're you know, they're around middle age now they're they're younger middle age <laughs> right. whatever that is right. that were young kids in school when i was doing all these share shows and different kinds of and, and i did i did vegas big huge vegas shows and stuff because that was so much fun mm-hmm. and they were watching me i didn't even know i knew all their names they were famous but when they were in school they were collecting pictures of stuff that i had done and they knew who i was and all of this nonsense and i was in california you know just chomping out all that glitter and flash but <laughs> <laughs> so they've they've now it's now kind of uh 
grown into it with the but, people but who are now. all of a sudden now they're saying, you were such a huge influence on fashion and, and you changed the whole look of the red carpet and you did this and you did this and you did this. And they just gave me an award the other night for it. So it, it's, um, you know, a Lifetime Achievement Award. I'm going, really? After all those years? <laughs> they I mean, finally got it. Yeah, but it's okay. You know, I'm, I, I wasn't unhappy. I, I love doing what I do. Well, so to have a full circle moment here where you get to the share show now, they tell you they're going to do this show and <laughs> you're not, not only do they want to use your fashion in it, but they want to have you as a character in it. What did, what did you make of that? And, and, and what did it entail from Well, first you? of all, the producer of Floaty Suarez came to see me I, almost 20 years ago, not quite, I mean, 19 or something like that, and said, I have this idea to do a Broadway musical about Cher. Mm -hmm. And he says, you have to do the costumes. You just have to. And I said, well, when you get it all together and get the money, get the producer, whatever, whatever, just call me. You know, I'm sure it'd be fun to do. And this went on for many years. Mm -hmm. And it never happened, and I never thought it would at that point. You know, after after a few years, you think, well, he's probably bored with the idea, and he's going on. But it turns out that they were doing it. But the director that they'd hired had another designer in mind. Well, not even a designer. Well, she's a designer, but she's really a stylist. Mm -hmm. And I thought, how can you do this share? How can you do a share show with a stylist? You're going to go over to Saks and pick up a few share outfits. <laughs> you know, it's, but I, I said, I'd still like to do it. And it, it was their choice, you know. It's, but I mean, how much work was this for you? But then they wanted been. to know, well, who owns those? Who owns those designs? And and I own those designs. Yeah. And so they were gonna they were gonna pay me to do them. But then how's this person gonna know how to make those clothes? Because they're not you know not regular. You don't just drop a sketch off right. and go away <laughs> and, and hope to come back to that. Right. Right. Anyway, how many Cher insisted that I do it? Yes, and then it was that's was it. But I mean, it's a I I can't recall seeing a show where the costumes get applause. Maybe once in a while, but like yeah, this well, was you. What, but it was just it was it was it was geared for that. I mean, yeah. they didn't add that. That was already in the script before I ever arrived on the scene. No, I know, but I'm I'm saying it. It's an amazing testament to you that people, you know, even before your character, I think gets. <laughs> so I mean, let's talk about that. You've got a guy playing you in a on a Broadway show. Right. Well, that's weird you know for, when you've never had that before and you have to dress yourself all of a sudden you know you're not you're not edison or 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 roosevelt or somebody like that you know you're there i am you know bob mackie up there this guy with a blonde wig on singing and dancing and and all these girls dressed to the nines it's really fun at the end of the show they come out in their what you've called warrior goddess outfits. Yes. Um, the whole thing is like a, I know, it's a, a, a great spectacle. No, but I mean, it's beautiful. And so to be nominated for a Tony for the first time, to be going into this on Sunday, you know, and just all the sort of appreciation that's been coming your direction as a result of this show and the whole kind of all the memories it brings back about all your other work with Cher is, is that what's that been like for you? It's been crazy. I didn't expect it really. I thought we'd get nominated, but I've been getting a lot of attention. Let's, let's hope after all this attention, I'll, I'll get one. Yeah. Who knows? You don't know. And you don't do a show to get an award. I mean, that's not why you do it. You do it because you love doing it. Other, if you didn't love doing these kind of clothes, you'd want to commit suicide because it's right. hard. Right. It's just plain hard. Right. But it's, I mean, it's, uh, this is incredible, the, the outfits in this. I, I'm not somebody who knows very much about well, it, but the, I can tell it's but just, it, this but is. But her, her whole persona for so many years was about what is she wearing. Right. 
What is she going to wear? And people would watch the TV shows in, in, in the old days, not just to see. There's a fascination and a charisma about the woman. People really are always interested yeah. in her, in her life, in the way she looks, what she's going to wear. Um, and then, of course, her songs. And, and, and people, I see people in the, in the theater that, that were must have been kids when, when that show, those shows were on the air. They know all the words. Yeah. They get up and dance. It's crazy. Whole busloads from New Jersey come roaring right, right. in, full of <laughs> full of people to see the share show. I mean, it's it's just really kind of amazing. Just some big picture closing stuff. Okay, just the first okay, thing. Okay. I talked too much. I'm no, sorry. I'm thrilled. I really appreciate it. All right. So you began designing clothes at a time, I guess, when the average American would still dress up nicely to go to a Broadway show or to get on an airplane or stuff that is out the window today, right? So how do you feel about that as somebody who loves clothes and fashion, whatever? Do you think that society overall is well, let it go? Uh, yeah, I, I think I think most people, I mean, just go, just go outside 8th Avenue and take a look. Yeah. You know, it's pretty scary for the most part. People, <laughs> people have gotten very, fashion has become very casual, which is a good thing. You know, that, that clothes are wearable and easy and you're comfortable and you can do your work. But, but it doesn't translate to sloppy, and that's what I see every day, or just just downright butt ugly. Right, right. You know, you just go, wait a minute. <laughs> you're, you're on the street. Go home and get dressed. <laughs> Especially here in New York. In, the minute it's warm, look out. You see more skin than you ever want to see. <laughs> okay, so now for somebody who's known for, to use your word, and I think it, 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 I mean it only in the best sense, but like for flashier Right. Flashy outfits. A lot of the, your most fam famous outfits are flashy. You yourself, I've always read and I, I guess you dress pretty conservatively. Is How do you reconcile those two things? Well, I'm not a drag queen. No. <laughs> <laughs> but you don't have the same desire I mean, to like no, peacock it? No. no. Never? Well, no. I like to be dressed if it's if it's the right thing to do. I went to that ball. I mean, everybody was dressed up like people thought I dressed people. Right, but you're and not I, wearing And I had like... my tuxedo on, you know. <laughs> I mean, you know, that's, it's, I, I, I'm not, you know. Not I'm, looking I'm, for attention. I'm not looking way. for attention yeah. that way. There are designers, however, that do like to dress up a bit. Yes. Who do you most wish you'd had the chance to dress but didn't? Oh, I don't know. You know, you can't. Well, I mean, no... you love those old movies. Is well, there somebody from those? I love those old movies. Yeah, I mean, I, I could have, I could have. Actually, I could have dressed Monroe very well. Yeah. But I, I was working for somebody that was, and it was doing very well. But then we never, they never finished the film. So, or you know, and I love as a little kid, I loved Betty Grable. Yeah. You know, and I loved all that stuff. I, I wish, many times I think, oh, I wish I lived back in you know the, the 30s and 40s, 50s when they were doing all those musicals and right. stuff. I, I would have been at home there. Yeah. But, Last one. But whatever. When you look at fashion today, where do you see your greatest influence and what do you hope will be your greatest legacy? I don't think about legacy. No. I really don't. It, it, everybody has to do what they do. Yeah. It, it, we're all influenced by what you learn as you grow up. You know, you see things, you see things you like. Maybe your mother had a favorite dress when you were five years old. And chances are when you're 35, being a designer on 7th Avenue, you might do a dress kind of like that because you just think it was so beautiful. And maybe it was, you know. So who knows? Just do the best you can and get through life. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks very much for tuning in to Awards Chatter. 
We really appreciate you taking the time to do that and would really appreciate you taking a minute more to subscribe to our podcast for free on iTunes or your podcast app and to leave us a rating as well. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me via Twitter at twitter.com slash Scott Feinberg. And you can follow all of my coverage between episodes at thr.com slash the race. Finally, be sure to check out the other podcasts that are part of the Hollywood Reporters Podcast Network, all of which are excellent. Leslie Goldberg and Daniel Feinberg's TV's Top 5, Seth Abramovich and Chip Pope's It Happened in Hollywood, Carolyn Giardina's Behind the Screen, and Josh Wiggler's Series Regular. On behalf of all of us at The Hollywood Reporter, thanks for tuning in. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.